travel there every Sunday. The different churches throughout the world. And you wouldn't have to put up a mic preaching because we'd get a satellite sermon from him or whatever church he's at, broadcast over the internet, and we just download it on Saturday night, and then Sunday we play here. So we subtitle like the language or whatever choice we like. Or if we had questions about church or doctrine or life, we could just email them to him. Though of course if two billion people were sending an email once a week, that would be a very big box fun. It'd be pretty good though, wouldn't it? Not only to evangelize, uh, people can read uh, about Jesus for themselves from the newspaper, or they can see him on CNN. And that would be the best way for the gospel to go out, wouldn't it? And for Christians to get to know Jesus better, because, well, he's here. Would it? Or wouldn't it? Before we see the answer to that question from our passage, let me remind you of where we're up to in the Gospel of John. This is the night before Jesus is killed. If you're following the Jewish way of thinking, it's the day of his death. Because remember, they come the day from sunset to sunset. As Jesus is speaking to his disciples in what we call the farewell discourse. He shared the last supper with them, his last before his death. He started talking to them in the upper room where the last supper was held. But now they've all left the room with him, they're going along and he's still talking. In a few minutes, he's going to pray for them. Then, he will be arrested. Thus far, in the farewell discourse, he's warned them that he's going to die. He's comforted them in their sorrow. And immediately before the passage we read today, the passage we looked at last week, Jesus warned them that the world so hated him, now it's going to hate them. The world that hated him and wanted to kill him would hate them as well. So they were to expect trouble and persecution from the world because that's what happened to him. Now Jesus was saying these things because he was about to leave them. He was about to die and be raised and sent to the Father. That's why they needed to be warned about the persecution, encouraged to persevere. Up to this time he's been with them physically, but now he's, he's not going to be. Second half of verse 4, chapter 16, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, interesting, isn't it? As I read this, as I've always read this, I think Jesus saved the disciples, I'm going, but you all didn't ask me where am I going? But is that what he means? Because if you go back to chapter 13, verse 36, 13, 36, Simon Peter said to him, part of the same night, Father Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Hey, that's funny, isn't it? Um, in chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So why is Jesus now saying, you'll never ask me where I'm going? Surely Jesus remembers all these things. Now, it really puzzled me until I read the sentence in verse 5, uh, until I read the sentence in the Greek, which just shows how dumb I am because the sentence in the Greek is exactly the same as the sentence in English. I just got used to reading it one way and didn't realize there's another way to read it that is actually more consistent with the context. First of all, notice where the but is in the sentence. The but's not in the middle of the sentence. He's not saying, I'm going to make a but none of you ask me where you're going. 
the part, which is a weak part, but it's at the beginning of the sentence. But, now I am going to Hebrew something. What is it contrasting? It's contrasting verse 4 and verse 5, isn't it? Verse 4, I was with you, verse 5, but now I am going to Hebrew something. Right? So, but now I am going to Hebrew something, and none of you ask me where you are going. See that? How come none of them ask him where he is going? Because they already know. He's already told them. He's going to the Father. Back in chapter 14, verse 28, he says it ever so plainly. 14, 28, I am going to the Father. See that? He's told them already. So what does verse 5 mean? It simply means this. He says, now I am going to the Father. And I already told you so plainly. So you're not asking where you're going. You already know. See? Now I'm going to the Father. You know where I'm going. You're not asking anymore. So let's read verse 4b and 5 again. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now, I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me where you're going because you all know that. Where am I going? But now you know where I'm going. You know that I'm going to the Father. You are still sad. Verse 6. But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You don't actually want me to go. Even though you know I'm going to the Father. But actually Jesus says, it's better that I go. Even it's better for you that I go. It's better for you that I leave and go back to the Father than if I stay with you physically. Because if I go to the Father, then you will receive something even better than my bodily presence with you. You receive the Spirit. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word translated Helper here is the Greek word parakletos. It's difficult to translate. Just why you look at all the different translations here, everyone translates it differently. Right? Here in the ESV, we've got Helper. Which is good as long as you realize in the Bible, as it should be in life, that the word helper doesn't carry a sense of inferiority. Or you could translate it advocate, which makes our lawyer friends happy. Um, but it's not primarily a legal setting. Not limited anyway to a legal setting. You could translate it counselor, but it's more like a legal counsel than it is like the counselor we have in our common thing where you go and talk to someone about whatever issues that you're facing. Sometimes, because there's no English word for it, we anglicize the Greek word and call him the paraclete. Just remember, the main idea of the paraclete is someone who comes alongside to give assistance, to help, where help is needed. Now we have met the paraclete before in this farewell discourse. In chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete to be with you forever. So, what do we know? Jesus asked the Father for the paraclete. And the Father gives another paraclete. Because Jesus was a paraclete. Also, he was someone who was there to help the disciples, bring them along. And now he's going, he's going to ask for another one. And this one is going to be permanent. He will be with you forever. And, who is this one? Verse 17, he is the Spirit of Truth. He is the Spirit 
who points people to Jesus. Jesus just said that he's the truth, and now this is the spirit of truth, who reveals the truth to him. Or chapter 14, verse 26. Chapter 14, verse 26. The help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. He will help the disciples remember everything that Jesus said. And then chapter 15, verse 26. In chapter 15, verse 26, which we looked at last week, when the helper comes, when the paraclete comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And we saw last week that he can do that because he's a, he's a witness of the inner Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son for all eternity. Just like the apostles were the witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in history. Now Jesus says it's better that I go to the Father because unless I go to the Father, the paraclete will not come. But if he comes, then Jesus, if he goes, then Jesus will send the paraclete to them. Now I'm sure they wouldn't have been able to understand this at the time. But even now, on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's still hard to understand. There's still mystery in that. But we've got a much better idea. Jesus would have to die for sin and rise again. Then he'll be exalted to God's right hand on high. And then and only then he'll, he will pour out the Spirit on his disciples. That's God's plan. And if Jesus were not to go, if he were not to die for sin, then he would not be raised and exalted. If he is not raised and exalted, then he could not send the Spirit. And it's better for them to let God's plan take shape, even though it was painful and scary, than for them to have Jesus' physical presence with them and miss out on the work of the Spirit. It's better for them this to happen in the end. Now there are two aspects of the Spirit's work that Jesus tells out here. There's the work of conviction and there's the work of revelation. Conviction and revelation. And we're going to look at each of them in turn. Firstly, the work of conviction. Now you remember from last week that the world hated Jesus because they did not know the Father. But they were wrong to reject Jesus. And when the paraclete comes, Jesus says in verse 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. To convict the world of sin means to show the world is guilty, to prove them wrong, to show that they are guilty. So the Spirit will convict them of sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. That we saw last week was their biggest sin. And the Spirit will prove to the world that they are wrong to reject Jesus. For the pouring out of the Spirit will show that Jesus is indeed the exalted Lord. And so when the Spirit is poured out, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, and the people are cut to the heart. They say, what shall we do? We have crucified him, but God has vindicated and made him Lord in Christ. And the Spirit showed that they were guilty. And the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of God, he convicted them of sin. And the Spirit would also convict the world of righteousness. The Spirit will show that Jesus is indeed righteous. For the sending of the Spirit will prove, verse 10, that he's gone to the Father. That is why they will see him no longer. And when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he would say that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. And therefore, as it's written in the Old Testament, he was pouring out his Spirit to show that he's indeed Lord and Christ. The world had crucified him as a fraud, but God raised and exalted him, vindicating him as the righteous one. And the pouring out of the Spirit shows 
that did as he is the one, he that is the case, the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. And Jesus said he will convict the world concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. In a few hours, the world will judge Jesus and condemn him. But the Spirit will show that actually they are the ones in the dock. In fact, verse 10, it says the ruler of this world is judged. The evil power that stands behind the world, society, establishment, the system, has been defeated and condemned. And so if he is judged, then all who follow him, whether they do so explicitly or by default, they are judged themselves. And so on the day of Pentecost, Peter would urge his hearers to save themselves from a crooked generation or an evil people or an evil nation. Friends, the Spirit on the one hand has done this work already. The world has been proven guilty. Jesus has been vindicated. The ruler of the world stands condemned. But at another level, Jesus, the Spirit, continues to do a similar work. Before you believed in Jesus, you were rejecting him. How did you come to realize the guilt of your rejection? How did you come to see that you were wrong to dismiss him? How did you come to realize that by hating him, you were hating the Father? You smart enough to work it out? Oh, you only knew because the Spirit was at work in you. The Spirit worked objectively in the events of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. He spoke about those events in the words of the Scriptures. He worked through various messengers to get that message to you. He worked in your heart to enable you to believe them. And he brought you to the point where you knew that you were guilty of failing to live under Christ as your Lord and you needed to do something about it. And so the Spirit convicted you of sin. And he convicted you of righteousness. He worked objectively in the events of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. He spoke about these events in the words of the Scriptures. He worked through various messages who brought that message to you. He worked in your heart to enable you to believe it. And he brought you to the point where you knew that Christ is indeed righteous and good and true and deserves to be worshipped as Lord and God. And so the Spirit convicted you of righteousness. And he convicted you of judgment. He worked objectively in the events of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. He spoke about these events in the words of Scripture. He worked for various messengers to get that message to you. And he worked in your heart to enable you to believe and he brought you to the point where you knew that the ruler of this world and all the forces that oppose Jesus are facing his eternal fury and you know you didn't want to be part of that. And the Spirit convicted you of judgment. Be thankful, brothers and sisters, for the work of the Spirit in your hearts. And if anyone is not convicted of these things, of sin and righteousness and judgment, Let's pray that the Spirit will convince you as well. It's only when you realize the depth of your guilt, who you are up against by not submitting to Jesus, that you will come to Him and cling to Him and appreciate the wonderful salvation that He wrought for you on the cross. That, my friends, is the work of the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. The second work of the Spirit that Jesus speaks of here 
is his word of revelation. Jesus had other things he wanted to teach his disciples, but he would live apparently to do that. 16 verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, these verses must be, must be some of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. When the Episcopal Church of the USA decided to consecrate openly gay bishops and bless same-sex marriages, they said the Spirit of Truth has led us into all truth. The Spirit has led us this way, and that's what Jesus said we would do, and so now that's what we're doing. The Spirit is also leading other people to rightly condemn their actions, it's unbiblical. understand these verses. Well, understand them always, always we understand the Bible in its context, isn't it? Who is Jesus talking to? Jesus is talking to his first disciples, the people that we know as the apostles. And throughout this farewell discourse, Jesus is very careful to distinguish between when he is talking to them and when he is talking about all of us. When he's talking about all of us, he uses phrases like, He who believes in me. Or, if anyone loves me. That's things for all of us. An example of that, 14.12 and 14.23. You can just jot that down if you want it. If you want to look at it now, you can look at it later. When he just says you, he is speaking specifically to his disciples. Now, there will be implications for us, but first and foremost, he's talking to them. We saw an example of that last week in 1527. 1527, he tells them, You will bear witness. That is, they will testify as eyewitnesses of his life and death and resurrection. Why? Verse said, Because he had been with me from the beginning. And that's that, isn't it? Not us. We were with him from the beginning. We're not eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Or back in 1426, 1426, he says, but when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, comes, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's talking about all the things he's spoken of for the last three years. He's been spending those last three years with the apostles, not with us. First and foremost, he's talking to them. And so here, when we look at this verse, first thing we want to say is, that Jesus is saying the apostles will be guided into all truth. The Spirit will lead them to all truth. That is, Jesus is guaranteeing that the apostles will get it right because the Spirit will lead them. He will be gone physically, but the Spirit will continue to teach the apostles and give them all those things that he wanted to teach them, but he couldn't bear at the moment. So how do we benefit from it? What is the apostles who are responsible for the writing of the New Testament? The New Testament is the ongoing apostolic witness to the risen Christ. Because it's not just the words of man, it's also the word of the Spirit. Because Jesus promised the Spirit would lead them to all truth. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it sometimes says things like, David said... Sometimes it's like God said through David. Sometimes it simply says the Spirit says. And all three are correct. 
The Old Testament is simultaneously the words of the prophets and the words of the Spirit. And likewise, the New Testament is simultaneously the words of the apostles and the words of the Spirit. The Spirit of truth would lead them to all truth. The revelation he would give them would be complete. First of all, a bit more deeply at the work of the Spirit in this. Now, you may recall that Jesus said back in chapter 5 that he doesn't do anything apart from the Father. He only does what the Father does. And whatever the Father does, he does. Doesn't make him any less than God the Father. On the contrary, only God can do the things that only God can do. He is God. The Father does everything, the Son does everything the Father does. He is just as much God as the Father. Now here in chapter 16, we see that the Spirit is like that as well. Now verse 13 says, When the Spirit will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Or literally, he, he will not speak from himself. The Spirit doesn't speak independently, just as Jesus doesn't speak or work independently. The Spirit tells the apostles what he himself hears, because the Spirit is privy to the internal discussions, if you like, of the Trinity. He's part of the Godhead, present with the Father and the Son for all eternity. And so he knows and he understands and is able to truly reveal Christ to the apostles. He is able to declare to them the things that at this stage were things to come at the end of verse 13. The things that were, from their point of view, the things to come were Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation. Finally, his return. And all these things, their, their meaning, their significance, their implications, the Spirit would reveal to the apostles. And as he revealed those things, verse 14, he would glorify Christ. Just as the Son brings glory to the Father, the Spirit brings glory to the Son. That's, that's what he does. And how does he do that? He glorifies Christ, verse 14, by taking from what is mine, belongs to Christ, and declaring it to them. He speaks to them of Christ. He opens their eyes to all that God is revealing of Christ to them. Because all those things, things to come and, declare, and what, declaring what is mine is the, the same thing as that. It's what he declares, he does. He makes Christ known, declares Christ. And yet when he's speaking of Jesus and he's revealing Jesus, that's not independent of the Father. Because Jesus is not in competition with the Father. The Son perfectly reveals and expresses the, the Father. And so Jesus says in verse 15, All the Father has is mine. The Father shares everything with the Son. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son, except, of course, his fatherhood of the Son. And therefore, Jesus continues in verse 15, Therefore I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will speak to them of Jesus. And as the Spirit declared Christ to the apostles, he was also giving them the Father. Because everything the Son has is from the Father. Everything the Father has is shared with the Son. They have the Son, they have the Father. And the Spirit who will glorify the Son will therefore also glorify the Father. So how does this relate to us? Well, friends, we need to be really thankful for the spiritual revelation which we have received. Spirit led the disciples into all truth. Spirit brought what Jesus said into their remembrance. 
The Spirit has taken what belongs to Christ and given it to the apostles. And now we, through the apostolic writings in the New Testament and the prophetic writings beyond, we have the Spirit saw the Word of God at our fingertips. What a great privilege we have. And when we read the Word of God as Christians, we don't just read it as a letter from someone who lived long time ago, or an email from someone who's far away. We, for we do have the Spirit. The divine author himself is in us. And pointing us to Jesus, even as we read that word that he gave. He's not giving us new revelation about God. That revelation is completed in Jesus. He's the word about whom the Spirit speaks. And if we have him, we have everything. But the Spirit continues to point us to Jesus, whom we meet in the Bible, the Spirit's word. He continues to work in our hearts so that we can respond to that word in faith and obedience. He continues to speak to us in his word. The truth that he spoke to the apostles so many years ago. And in doing so, he brings glory to Christ and ultimately to the Father. So, would it be good to have Jesus physically present with us? Well, on one hand, of course it would be. be wonderful. Maybe he'd even come to Malaysia every few years. And one of those trips, I mean, once every few decades, he could even come to St. Mary's. And every century or so, he could even turn us back to And he could speak to him for 30 seconds if you're able to say anything once you get off the floor. And he could teach you something about himself as he reveals the Father. That would be pretty good, I would say. Except that without the Spirit, you, well, it wouldn't be because you wouldn't be a believer. You'd be still of the world. Because hating him, you'd be of the world facing judgment. And well, that wouldn't be very good. At least for you and me. And without the Spirit, we wouldn't have the Bible. We wouldn't have the Spirit's revelation of Jesus in the New Testament. And without the Spirit, without that, we wouldn't have the, 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 the Son's perfectly trustworthy revelation of the Father either. And so we have to rely on something far less reliable than God's written word to hear about Jesus. No, no, Jesus was right. It's much better that he went and sent the Spirit. The Spirit convicted the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and he's convicted us and brought us to bow before Jesus in our hearts. The Spirit who led the disciples into all truth has given us His Word through them so that we know Jesus truly and can meet Him truly as we read His Word with our eyes or hear it with our ears. And so we can meet Jesus every day in the words of the Scriptures that the Spirit has given us and that's far more trustworthy than the Star or CNN. The same Spirit who gave us these words unpacks the truth that he first led the apostles into and applies it to our hearts. And remember, if the Spirit is with us, then Jesus is with us. And if Jesus is with us, then the Father is with us. We have an intimate relationship with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ because of the Spirit. So by the Spirit, Jesus is with us, each one of us, all the time. So we do have Jesus. 
Jesus was right. He always is. It was better than he went. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, has died for our sins, be risen from the dead, exalted to your right hand of our heart, calls upon us your holy and life in Thank you for the way that that Spirit has convicted the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Thank you for the way your spirit has convicted us personally of our sin, Christ's righteousness, judgment of the world. And Father, if there's anyone here who the spirit has not yet done that work of convincing and convicting, we ask Lord, would you please do that work by the spirit in their hearts? That they might know their need. We thank you for the spirit of truth that has led the apostles into all truth. And through them has given us your truthful word. So that we can know the truth of Jesus. Thank you that through that we are led into the truth, all truth, that you have revealed about Jesus. Thank you for your spirit's work in our hearts as we read your word. We pray that the spirit will continue to point us personally to that wonderful Savior, died for us and rose again, and continue to lead us to the truth that we have in him. We pray that you would help us always be grateful.